One of the most pressing stresses that the pandemic has brought on society is the strain on mental health. Deaths and grief from the disease, rising unemployment and devastation to the economy, prolonged lockdowns, all of these mean that the need for good mental health support is urgent, is critical, and it needs to be addressed now. One particular demographic I want to shine light on is healthcare workers. They are working within a system that is rapidly being overwhelmed, if not already overwhelmed, and they've had to witness patients' deaths while having to hang in there for the sake of battling COVID-19. I invited registered counsellor Sharil Zaini, who works at the health office in Moir that provides mental health support to the public and to healthcare workers in that district to discuss his work in this area. We talked about some measures to support healthcare workers and also the perennial story of what an individual can do when they operate within a very imperfect system. I feel strongly about discussing this topic, but I know there's no way I can cover the breadth and depth to reflect anything close to the distress that is being felt in this moment, with white flags literally being raised across the country out of desperation, with surging suicide cases that are treated with dismissive attitudes of some of the people in power. But however incomplete, I hope this will help inform in some ways. If you are listening to this and you feel that some of the issues discussed applies to you, do not in any way diminish your own experiences. Do seek help. And I've included some resources in the episode show notes. Sharil also works within the Ministry of Health System, KKM, and he wants to make it clear that these are his views and his particular experiences. Here's our show. We are in the middle of a health crisis. The healthcare workers are being called our frontliners. They are at the forefront of dealing with the health crisis. But at the same time, there's a lot of reports about how healthcare workers, they are working so hard and so many hours and are facing so much stress that is leading to burnout. And it may even trigger the onset of you know, mental disorders like PTSD and depression and so on. Is that consistent with your experience? What are some of the symptoms that you have found working with healthcare workers? For me, myself, I have observed symptoms of anxiety, especially among healthcare workers that I see some of them might have elevated heartbeat, rapid breathing, which is consistent with panic attacks. And for some depression symptoms also, there are people who reported they have lost interest in what they usually do, loss of motivation. For now, there are some mild depression and mild anxiety can be seen a lot in healthcare workers. What are some of the strategies that have been applied in this pandemic for our healthcare workers? For some places like Hospital Permai, for example, I was there last year. So we are doing psychological first aid and debriefing for healthcare worker. We are stationed at the operation center where healthcare workers sign in and sign out. We give care packages. We let them know that we are there if they need to contact someone to help them mitigate some of the psychological distress that they may face during that time. So that is what has been done in hospitals. But in public health setting, it's, uh, it's kind of hard to do so because they check in in different uh, clinics and then they are dispatched to different uh, locations for vaccination and also for sampling. So what we have done is we took like three hours. We do a program to increase self-awareness about their own emotion and for them to know uh, when to seek help and also bring the connectedness and support between other hacker, hacker workers so they, they have the feeling of belonging and social support between them. We also pro, uh, 
provided online screening, asked them to fill in the Google form and questionnaire about their psychological well-being. So even though they didn't tell us outright, we also have the list of name of people who are affected currently by the crisis. And then we do follow up with them. So you mentioned this self-awareness. When should someone seek help? I mean, presumably we should not be self-diagnosing, but how mm-hmm. does one know that you are in a situation where I need help and I should seek help? The biggest indicator that I suggest people to be aware of is sleep, the first one. The second one is about appetite. So if you have trouble sleeping or you are sleeping too much, or you have too much appetite or your appetite has been lost for maybe one week or something like that, or maybe you don't know what happened, uh, then there's a possibility you are actually psychologically distressed or maybe you're just burned out. It's all kind of uh, the same indicator. If it's prolonged, then you may have mental health disorder. And then another indicator is if you lose interest towards your hobby, if previously you actually like to watch K-dramas or something like that, I like to watch K-dramas. But then uh, when you try to do that, uh, to have some fun, you no, no longer feel joy in doing those kind of activities. So that does mean that you are psychologically uh, distressed and there are risks. If it's going on for too long, you may develop uh, more severe symptoms. One of the keys to prevention and even recovery of this emotional distress is social support, either from your peers or from your family. Yet one of this feature of COVID is, of course, that there is potential infection from healthcare workers to their family, or even if they change their status from healthcare worker to a patient, is a potential sort of stigmatization that happens. Have you seen how these competing needs are being reconciled? Yeah, this happens a lot as well, especially last year during the first wave. There's a lot of anxiety towards I'm going to infect other people. I'm going to make my loved ones sick. And there are some people who are being obsessive and compulsive about uh, SOP and cleanliness. And that causes them much anxiety, especially those who are living with the elderly and living with uh, kids. Sometimes they go back home and then wash everything uh, compulsively and staying away from their family for a long time. Some even uh, opted to rent uh, another place to take away from their family but that is during the first wave currently i think because the healthcare workers is already vaccinated and most of us are quite confident about our compliance towards sop and there's a lot more understanding about the virus and also they are used to the norms of taking social support from their family through like us doing it through Zoom. So they are kind of used to that. But I can see they they get more emotionally stressed out whenever festive seasons like Hari Raya or something like that. Uh, so they haven't come, come back. Like even last year, most of them haven't seen their families yet. This year also, they cannot see them. So there's so much Zoom and talking like through online can do, right? But the festivities, everything like Muslim durian, we cannot eat durian together. Is something that they are missing. (laughs) So, and then if you say about stigmatization and uh, being a patient, that is present as well. Uh, Sometimes in the clinics itself, when someone has been diagnosed, the staff may be like pointing fingers, maybe feel like, oh, 
we all have to be swapped as well because of you maybe you don't follow SOP as much there are finger pointing and blaming as well but it usually only lasts about about like one week or two weeks after the quarantine is over uh, then the peace will be restored again and actually half of them are quite supportive they would be understanding that sometimes things happen even you follow SOP as much as you can you can get infected so it's sometimes it's about luck as well there are one family who like sleep together on the same bed but the wife get it and the husband don't get it so it's usually it's not a negligence usually it's it's just luck sure another i guess really harsh feature of the pandemic is that for a lot of healthcare workers they might not be able to provide care for those that they are committed to care for maybe because the system is overwhelmed and they are having to make choices of who to provide treatment for. I'm not sure if this is something that you've seen before. I think this this goes back to this concept of moral injury, right? How are healthcare workers dealing with this and how do you support them in in dealing with uh, something like that? For me myself in uh, public health setting, I never saw anyone of them having that kind of uh, conflict or that moral injury. But I already saw someone posted in uh, social media in the hospitals in covid ward and in certain certain hospital which they should have done surgery but they cannot so there are risk of this moral injury to happen because principles and values are forcefully breached right um, but in any case if i were to presented or i met with any of the healthcare workers they are distressed because it's happened to them what would i do is work with the guilt and shame Usually they would have like tremendous guilt and tremendous shame letting those things happen to the patient that they're supposed to care for. So the guilt and the shame uh, would be present for a long time and it's hard to reconcile by themselves. If they see me, uh, we help them to reaffirm that that is not their fault. How do you view your responsibility in the larger fight against COVID? I mean this in the sense that do you see it as your job, your responsibility is to enable more healthcare workers to be functional so that they can go back to their roles to fight against COVID? I, I'm thinking of this term that I heard. It's called Marx or Zen. So if you know Karl Marx, he is for a wholesale change of the system, right? He says the system is rotten, we got to change the system. Whereas Zen is like, no matter what happens, we can't change what's outside of us. So we got to deal with what's inside of us. And I, I wonder if sometimes you look at your job in that way. Are these kind of competing needs? Does it mean that, okay, I'm helping you to be Zen and therefore maybe even if we are not making wholesale change, you can still function and therefore go back to your jobs. Because ideally, you are acting in the best interest of your client, right? And Sometimes the best interest of your client means that you are able to help them get back to their feet and then they can go back to their role as healthcare worker. Maybe sometimes the best interest of your client is to quit and not continue to be in this atmosphere or this climate that maybe worsens their distress. So I, I wonder if you have that sort of internal dialogue within you. Sometimes I feel that some of the psychological distress actually comes not from the COVID or the crisis itself, but the systemic problems that have been present for a long time that have just been magnified by this COVID crisis. I can accept certain things, but that is me personally. But for clients, if, for example, my colleagues, they kind of come up with me as a client and they cannot accept 
the situation, they cannot accept the system and they want to leave, for me as a counselor, I won't stop them. I won't say that, oh, you have to accept it. Sometimes I would even encourage them to do it if it would be better for them. If you ask me if there are someone who quit because of the burden of the COVID, actually no. Mm-hmm. Maybe the burden, with their burden increase, uh, they go deep into their, themselves and they know what is important for them. What are the values that they hold? And is it worth it? Maybe we feel like they are being uh, unfairly treated by the system. They actually stayed for the duty for the country. Uh, or maybe because they are going to the labor market if they, if they quit, right? So that is things that are stopping them. In, in a way, COVID-19 actually uh, helps them to notice the problems, but at the same time, stop them from actually doing anything yet. So I think a lot of people are having that that kind of internal conflict as well. And for me, I think the best messaging that I can give is let's get through this crisis first. And at the same time, you can organize your thoughts and organize the ways that we can do this better. But I, I, I think there is also long-term impact to this, right? To say that, okay, we are having a pandemic right now, so just hang in there first. But if the distress is something that the healthcare workers have to tough it out, won't there be kind of some sort of long-term impact to them? And and that, you know, might have also long-term impact on their careers within the healthcare system. That's true. And it's kind of difficult situation to be put in. You can also see some compassion fatigue and burnout, especially. There are stories on social media about how the bedside manners of some healthcare workers are not as good. It should be more empathy for people who are working with uh, people who are on their deathbed or something like that, but they are a bit more very cold. That is probably because they cannot afford to give more than they can have. They they need to care for themselves also emotionally and physically and maybe like some of the frustration will get channeled into the patient, for example. But generally, most people who are already in the system, already they usually quite resilient. That, that is what I can see. Lah. They have enough support from uh, people around them, for example, their families, and most of them are quite understanding about the world that they are living in and they, they have someone to support them. You have worked as a counsellor in a freelance setting as well as in, a, in KKM. What is the biggest difference that you have noticed working in these two different settings? The first difference is the... Um, clients that we are seeing. Usually clients who see us uh, when we are freelancing or in private practice, um, they come with us with a problem or when they are feeling distressed or they have something to change, then they come to see us. But in the in KKM, in the Ministry of Health, in the clinics or in Hospital Permai previously, doctors refer the clients to us. So when the patients are already having like quite severe problem, they already have uh, somatic symptoms like tremors in their hand or like severe trouble of sleeping and severe mood disturbances and then they come and see the doctors uh, because they want to know what is happening to them. They, they, not, they do not come to seek help from counsellors specifically but they come to see the doctors first. Also the socio-economic background as well. In private setting, they would be more educated they would be more open to psychological intervention and they have more resources 
while in KKM, they don't have a lot of resources. They are really struggling. And sometimes they, they want to go, come to session, they want to be helped, but they don't even have transport. There are resources that we sometimes they cannot see, but we as counselors are aware of. Uh, maybe we can refer them to the welfare department, or maybe we can refer them to other NGOs who, who can give support. Given the economic hardship that a lot of people are facing during the pandemic, are you seeing a rise in cases of people who come to you with these sorts of economic stresses? Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of increases, even in MOA. Um, even though MOA is kind of like budget bandar pension, what we call a retired city where people come after their retirement to chill. But recently I've seen a lot of young adults who were previously working and studying elsewhere in the big city, for example, but they get uh, they have been let go because of the economic situation and then they have to adjust living with their parents. So increase that with the, the stress of not of losing their job, not having money. And so it, it really is really bad for young adults, especially because they think that their careers are, should be starting up, right? They should find stability at this time. But then two years of their time is like suddenly gone. So I say this, that if you are struggling, uh, come to see us before it's too late. We can help you, we can support you emotionally and we can try to discuss the alternative you can do because we do hear in the media these days that there are a lot of uh, suicidal cases as well, right? Uh, and most of them are because of the COVID crisis and the loss of financial income. If you feel like you are very psychologically stressed, come to see us. There are people who can support you. And I do want to ask you for resources that I'm going to post on the show notes uh, regarding where people can go and look for help. Collabs Coworking is a co-sharing workspace uniquely designed for rising entrepreneurs, freelancers, startups, and corporates. Their mission is to create a modern workspace that will inspire, uplift, and help pave the way for members to achieve their goals through its ever-growing ecosystem. Collabs is giving the listeners of Work in Progress a free day pass at any of their five locations in Klang Valley. To redeem, go to bit.ly slash collapse free day pass. That's bit.ly slash C-O-L-A-B-S free day pass. The Work in Progress podcast is brought to you by Weekend Academy, a school that brings professionals to introduce students to wide-ranging topics from diverse industries, to give kids the opportunities to discover their interests, nurture their talents, and build the skills necessary to close the social capital gap. If you like what we do, both in making this podcast and in providing high-quality education to the students who need it the most, help us further our mission by donating to us at wecanacademy.org slash podcast. That's wecanacademy.org slash podcast. Thank you. I want to ask you to demystify the process of therapy a little bit. You are a registered counsellor. You do everything from the diagnosis all the way to treatment. Walk me through what happens in that entire life cycle. So we don't diagnose. Usually the diagnosis will come from the doctor. We assess, that is the word that we usually use uh, and psychologists use as well. Usually they have uh, presenting problems, things that cause client distress or things that 
the clients want to change. And then from there, we will explore the issue together and we collaboratively come towards a goal which we are going to achieve together. For example, they want me to teach coping skill and the patient or the client want to feel better about themselves. And then after we got the goals, uh, this is where things get really tricky because it totally differ how we achieve the goals based on the style and the preference of the counselors or the psychotherapist. For example, cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, that is one of the theory that is widely used in clinical setting and usually based on the goals, they either explore first, discuss and help the clients to vent out and listen to the history of the client, all the relevant information, and then they do some kind of case conceptualization. They uh, catch what exactly is causing the problem, whether it's like thoughts or behavior. Talk therapy, they give insight uh, or awareness, like I said before, to the client that, oh, this kind of thing is unhelpful for you. And clients will realize that themselves usually if you are really good at it, you don't need to point it out. Usually clients would like, oh, okay, yeah, this is bad for me, uh, something like that, right? Uh, and then when they realize that and they want to change it, uh, there are a few interventions and like homeworks that can help them to change their unhealthy or unhelpful behaviors. So for example, like teaching coping skills and also disputing the irrational thoughts through conversation, the counselor will dispute and change the client's thinking. Yeah, So that is based on CBT. Uh, there's also one kind of like humanistic and like uh, a bit person-centered, which sometimes I use as well, where usually we just, at the first time after we get the goals, we just mostly explore. We show empathy and we show acceptance for them. And in the session, we just allow the patient or clients to vent out and voice out their feelings and we just listen properly. And the self-awareness uh, or the insight will come to them automatically. Sometimes the, to encourage this insight or self-awareness, also we may do some intervention like writing a journal. For me, the counselors can be on that journey with you together, but I don't need to show you the way. Usually the insight awareness will come from them naturally. Person-centered or humanistic theory, they believe in the creative power of individuals in which individuals always want the best for themselves and they always find a way for them to be better they just need to be either empowered or they need to be mm, accepted as they are there are some theories that say that sometimes the things in the past bring problem right maybe through lighting better or maybe other other techniques uh, like role play as well we bring the repressed emotion to be expressed at that time in the session and then when they are already empowered to change when they have the insight awareness then we work towards the goals by maybe role-playing or doing homework or something like that as well. I may use one approach for one patient or one client with different personality and different problem. But for another client, I would use another approach. In the typical session with me, in the in the first session, I would get to know each other first. I would explain to them how the process would go. And usually I give them the choices as well. For example, uh, do you want me to go on towards the goal without uh, going to your past? Or do you feel like comfortable talking about your past as well? Uh, do you feel like there are something in your past that may be the cause of you being here? And are you willing to go towards that and explore that together? Or maybe you just want 
some tips and tricks on how to go through your life and how to be better. Uh, or maybe you just want to talk and I just listen to you like what we are doing. So there are, I usually give, give the patient choices. And I, you are trained in both CBT and, and the, the more humanist approach as well. Um, is that, is that as, something that you go through for tr- like in university training or how does that work? In Malaysia, what we have is LKM, Lembaga Counselor Malaysia, in which LKM supervise the universities. From our university, what we learn is usually the basic and all the theories in the counselling subjects. Uh, we learn the techniques and uh, also included that is the internship and practicum, which internship will take like 190 hours of face-to-face counselling and in for practicum which is around 96 hours if I'm not mistaken and after we finish the hours even if you go into internship and you don't complete the hours uh, you are not qualified to go to the interview and get a license so you need to fulfill the hours as we practice as we doing internship we will find the more, more suitable for our own personality and our own thoughts and behaviours that we can use for our clients. To call yourself a CBT practitioner, in the US, they have the CBT association who control those kind of things. Usually what is taught in the US is very experiential. For example, you have to be a client yourself before you can use it. They would see how many hours have you been using it. And then there's also supervision on how long have you been practicing. Uh, and then the supervisor will read you and tell you what, what is wrong or right before you can actually call yourself maybe like a play therapist. For me, I just say that I practice psychotherapy and my I prefer this approach and this approach because I never been formally trained in by one of the that association that I said to you before. Some of the counselor may call themselves maybe a CBT practitioner or maybe play therapist even without the certification from the governing body overseas. Um, but for me, uh, myself, I would reluctant to say so because there are a lot of intensive training. So I adapt them to my practice, but I'm not going to call myself that because I don't get the formal certification. Lah. Okay. What makes you decide to be a counselor? I noticed that uh, you have experience in other fields as well you were a fellow at teach for malaysia tfm for a while Mm -hmm. uh, and then you but you were also doing a lot of counseling work even before that so tell me a little bit about that journey i actually did something else that i didn't want due to stability in the future kind of pushed me towards this one course that i didn't like and i've been there for a few years and i feel stuck and i went through a dark place as well and then i dropped out and I do a bit of research and then I find psychology. Okay, psychology is nice. And then I found out that counselling is very practical. So I took a degree in counselling and then after a few time of like studying it, I just f- fall in love with it. After I graduated, I uh, entered for this formulation for a bit. Uh, that was before I get my licence. I'm not sure if you know for people from the middle or middle-lower social uh, socioeconomic background, wanting stability they would try to go into the government, right? So that was what I'm trying to do. But also teaching is not not that far away from what I'm interested in. I can be a good teacher. I think I kind of have the skills, but because teachers, uh, you have the right answer to questions, right? But for counsellors, everything is fine. What you think is correct is correct. 
about mm. now how are they? I don't know. I I think maybe I disagree a little bit because I teach mm. students and I like to think of my goals as opening up possibilities for students to explore mm. what their interests are, what their talents are. But we do have to give feedback that is constructive for the students. So, for example, you can tell them that I think this is good if you think that it is good, but if they, they didn't put in a lot of effort into it, there's also a way to give feedback like, I think you can do better than that, you know? Uh, so in that sense, I kind of see us overlap with counsellors also. Yeah. Anyway, um, this is my take. Yeah, but like I said before as well, there are ideals and there are also the systemic problem, right? Uh, so if you've been in public school, uh, I'm glad that in the, what what you are practicing uh, is very good. And like, for example, you are exposing them very early on about careers, right? And I guess if I see someone like you during my childhood, maybe I won't go a different path, <laughs> right? So that is really great. But what I was saying is like in context of public school. And for me, if I stuck there for like a few years, I think it would be quite exhausting for me to change myself for the sake of what the administrator would want. But I can see there are some changes in the public school as well. We need to be hopeful. <laughs> if you have not been a counsellor, what do you think you'd be? I think maybe I could be a writer if I were a little bit more persistent in writing and disciplined in writing. It's always one of those things that is like, everyone wants to write, but then to really do it and to really come up with something you're proud of. That is the hell that you gotta be willing to suffer through in order to do it. Well, actually very same with uh, creating a podcast. But anyway, that's a different, <laughs> different conversation. And talking about writing, what are three books that you would recommend to the listeners who would want to know more about this topic or it could be even just the books that you love? Okay, if you want to know more about counseling, for example, and like the humanistic way and the existentialism, like what I practice, I, I can say that my style is existentialism, which is sometimes we discuss about values. What do you value most and what are you doing now and what you are living now? Is it consistent with your values? Uh, and if it's not consistent, then you can get this kind of anxiety. You can get this kind of depression because you notice that the things that are going around you are not consistent with your the values. Uh, but you can read this book by Rollo May, which is one of the main figure of existentialism. The book is called Man's Search for Himself. And then there are a lot of other books by existentialism founders as well. And you can find maybe like the authors like Victor Frankl. He was uh, a survivor in the Nazi concentration camp. Uh, so he wrote a book which is more bi- biographical. The book is called Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah, that is by Victor Frankl. I love that book. Uh, you have you have read the book? I've, I, I read Frankl's book. So when you first say man's search for himself, I was like, hey, are you talking about that book? Uh, and then now I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So basically, right. Victor Frankl is also one of the figureheads of existentialism. And if you read him, his book, and then you would know that. But in Victor Frankl, it's more about you accepting their fate and working with your limitations and those kind of stuff. Lah. So I want to share my own favorite, <laughs> two of my personal favorite books. Uh, one is... Uh, the Picture of Dorian Gray, Dorian Gray uh, by Oscar Wilde, uh, okay. which is it's about reconciling your identity. And 
also the little prince I love that. Yeah. I really love that. Yeah. And then the little place is about connections and you see people and you try to understand them and then like how you make connections and how the, those connections can heal you and maybe make you better as a person and in which in, as a counselor is what I do as well. And if there is something that you wish for every child in the country to know about your profession and what you do, what would that be? The message that I want to send if the objective is to make them be inspired to become a counselor. <laughs> not, not necessary. <laughs> Even in your answer, it's such a counselor kind of answer. Uh, depends on your objectives. Uh, no, but I, I think it's not so much about that. There are a lot of industries out there, a lot of careers out there in which people only have very vague conception of what it is and maybe a lot of misconception of what it is so if you were to tell people what it is about what you do that people should know about what would that be uh, what is the perception that you have about counselors i have had therapy sessions mm-hmm. with counselors uh, this this is not coming from a career perspective it's coming from somebody who is seeking psychotherapy i think it is important to find someone that you click with, I guess. There is a certain level of being on the same wavelength almost. Because I think when it does click, like I just know it. Like, oh wow, that is such a deep insight and that is super duper helpful. And yes, it is going to enable me to make all of these changes that I want. But when it doesn't make sense, it's like, hmm, I don't know. (laughs) And then also, counsellors are also human beings with your own life experiences and exposure. So I feel that maybe it is also important to find a counsellor that is a little bit more experienced and is able to provide a sort of bird-eyes view, at least for me, because I want insight that is more in line with kind of the, the stage in my life right now. What you were saying is No, I'm just kidding It's what a counsellor would usually say <laughs> Yes, 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 yes No, it's, it's true, it's true what, what you were saying The relationship between the counsellor and the clients Is the most important thing And agree that it's the process But at the same time it's the relationship That actually helps the most The biggest predictor of success in counselling is actually how deeply connected you are, how much you click or how are your therapeutic relationship. For kids, if they want to pursue this career, it is hard work and you are exposed to compassion fatigue. You are exposed to vicarious trauma. Uh, so if you want to help people, that is your main motivation to go to counselling, then there are times that you're going to find out that you you are not a superhero. You cannot help everyone. Sometimes you just need to let go. But that is something that we learn during our training as well. That is That will come with experience. We learn about ethics. We learn about limitations. And we know about when to stop. So in a way, it's a very hard and difficult job that you need constant training. You need to be constantly adapt, updated about the new techniques. And if you want to like be formally accredited as as the practitioner of the latest kind of theory or something like that, you need a lot of money as well. Most people in Malaysia don't consider counseling or psychotherapy something that worth paying for. Uh, so we are we are not rich. <laughs> <laughs> so money shouldn't be a motivation. It might change though. That might change though. I hope so. 
I mean, I, I think that might change once people have more awareness of the importance of mental health and that there should not be any stigma in seeking help. In fact, if anything, seeking help is actually a, a sign that you want to do something to improve whatever is the situation that you're going through. I, I, well, I, I feel that it's something that will change over time. Yeah. I, I can see the trend of it's actually increasing as well. Uh. But yeah, I, like I said, I'm actually a realist. So for kids as well, things might change, right? Even if you decide to do something that you wanted or you're interested now, if you think about the stability in the future or something like that, don't do that. Just do something that you are actually very passionate and interested in. But if you have the hero concept of you want to help people, you want to make them feel better or something like that, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes your client and you are not on the same level or doesn't click. Sometimes the resources that the patient have is very limited and you cannot do anything but support them and see them suffering and you suffer together with them. And so if you really wanted to help, if you have that hero complex, then it may be hard for you to hold on to the job. I mean, you can work towards work over that as well. Lah. What what helps you hold on to your job? How do you take care of yourself and keep yourself mentally strong while supporting other people and supporting healthcare workers? Um, the thing is, I'm not really that mentally strong, to be honest. <laughs> but at the same time, we also have the tips and tricks. We learn ourselves how to cope, right? The coping skills and everything. So currently, now in the MCO, actually, I, I would really like a massage. But apparently, we are in MCO, right? <laughs> so, that is actually one of my ways to relax and de-stress. But unfortunately, we can't. Uh, but recently, I jog a lot. And also, I joined a lot of free classes uh, currently. And also, for me and my friends, we make online support group in which we meet around like once per month. We just share our concern, kind of like a support group of counselors. And yeah, I know some counselors also see other therapists as well for their own personal problem. And for me as well, once per week at least, I would go and see because in uh, Pejabat Kesehatan Daerah Muar, there's another counselor who uh, is working here. Uh, so once a week, we will meet each other and we will debrief and let go of our and our emotion. We process it together and let it go at that time. And there is no conflict of interest in or, or any breach of confidentiality talking about cases. Usually, if we're talking about cases, uh, we don't give out the personal details. And if I talk to my, my friend, my other partner that is in PKD Moa, I would definitely hide some details which allow her to recognize the person. And sometimes any case that I'm discussing is actually uh, a consolidation or maybe a combination of two or three cases to hide the identity of the person involved or the client involved. Okay. And on that note, thank you so much, Sharil, for coming on the show. All right. And, and spending time with us while you uh, already have a lot to deal with, um, you know, taking care of healthcare workers and so on. So I hope you... Stay strong and stay safe. No worries. Glad to spend time with you as well. And I hope uh, this can promote our services to people out there and help them to destigmatize a bit about mental health support and come to see us. I mean, like, even though I sound 
tired and like a lot of things on my plate. But actually, we know how to handle it. <laughs> I know how to handle it, and I can take more patients and more people to come to see me. So no worries, don't don't worry about us. When you come to see us, we're not burdened. So yes, thank you so much for the opportunity. That's our show this week. Remember, if you are seeking mental health support, I've listed some resources that's available on the show notes of this episode. Go to wecanacademy.org/podcast. That's w-e-c-a-n-academy.org/podcast. Work in Progress is brought to you by Wecan Academy, and it's produced, edited, and hosted by me, Yap Meiyi. Music is by Caffeine Creek Band. Ad music is by Jazar. Email me with questions. Feedback or what you wish I covered but did not at wepod.wecan at gmail.com. That's w i p p o d dot w e c a n at gmail.com. Thank you. See you again in two weeks' time.